So, Berto, I have some questions from patrons that I thought we would read on the air and see what our answers are. What do you say, Berto? That sounds like a grand old time. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist, and I'm also a professor. My name is Umberto Castaneda, and I make fake diamonds. This first email is from Sam from Scotland. She writes, My ambition is to become a holistic therapist, treating patients with PTSD, with holistic care methodologies, and therapy including cognitive behavioral therapy. I recently watched the Netflix documentary, Goop Lab. I was curious if you have seen it, uh, if you had seen it, what are, your th- what are your thoughts on it? Particularly the first episode about psychedelic therapy. Any views you may want to share would be greatly appreciated. End of email. So I meant to watch it. I never did. But Birdo, I, I told Birdo to watch it ages ago because we got this yeah. email ages ago. Birdo, as the dedicated podcaster he is, he actually watched some episodes, yeah. um, and I completely forgot about it. <laughs> and instead of uh, me actually watching the show at some future date and at some maybe future date talking about this, I just decided, you know what, I'll just throw it to Birdo and see what his reaction was. So, Birdo, what did you think of Goop on Netflix? Yeah, um, so it's funny. Before you asked me to do this, I, I've, I had not heard that she had made a documentary thing on, on Netflix. I did know... Gwyneth Paltrow. About, I, well, I certainly knew Gwyneth Paltrow. I used to be a huge fan, or maybe still am. Um, I had heard about Goop, though. I knew about her website and her products, and I had heard a lot of mixed things and some wacky things. And so, I, I'm, you know, that kind of thing. So then when you said, hey, watch the show, I'm like, oh, okay. And I really actually was not looking forward to it uh, because of sort of that. And I have a, an inherent bias against a lot of this kind of stuff. When I was a kid, my dad railed against it constantly, probably too much. I'm surprised I didn't go the other way with it. Because uh, like we would be driving and he'd look over and there would be like a um, naturopath or whatever, uh, one of those places where they do the homeopath. That's what it was where they do that homeopathy stuff. And he'd be like, oh, these bastards. And it was just like hatred. Um, he hated like anything that was not quote-unquote scientific. Uh, and astrology, all that stuff. Um, he even got really upset at me one time for a ridiculous reason, which I've called him on since. I think I was maybe 10 years old or something. And we were walking down the street I think I've told this on the podcast before, but we're walking down the street. Actually, to, by, by now I assume I've told everything about my life and everyone else's life 20 times over in the podcast. Right. So nothing's new under the sun. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I was thinking about that the other day too. I was like, because I was listening back to one of our episodes and I kept saying, I've probably said this on the podcast before, <laughs> that after 12 years of doing this podcast, a, over a thousand episodes and probably a cumulative of 2,000 hours of talking, the chance that I've that I haven't said everything that could be possibly said is probably pretty small. Pretty so small. we we probably don't need to say that anymore. We probably yeah. can just and and plus we might have said it five hundred episodes ago. Just assume I have I'm I'm like not remembering things. That's yeah. It. So right. I think I think we can stop saying that phrase. Oh, I probably said I'm saying this mostly for my sake. Honestly, I yes, need, I need yes, to stop yes. saying that every single time. No, I, I love it. I'm not going to say it again. I, I've probably said before that I'm never going to say it again. Um, all right, so I'm walking down the street with my dad, 
And I'm doing what many kids do. I am trying to land on the non, you know, it's got like tiles on the floor. And I'm trying to land each step I take, make sure I'm not landing on a crack or on a separation. Now, remember, I, I did grow up between Colombia and the United States, but a lot of my time as a kid was in Colombia. So I'm doing this. And my dad's like, what are you doing? I'm like, what, what, what do you mean? Wait, stop that. I'm like, stop what? Like, I know what you're doing. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, dad. You're doing the thing because you're afraid that you're going to break your mom's back or whatever. And he's saying this in Spanish. And by the way, I don't think there's a saying in Spanish about this. So I don't even know what the hell he's talking about. I've never even heard the saying in English, let alone in Spanish. And I'm just doing like a little personal challenge to make sure I don't land in the lines. So then I'm like, what? My mom? Like, what? And then he's like kind of confused because he's not sure to believe that I don't know what he's talking about. But that's how against superstitions he was. That when he thought his little 10-year-old son was maybe following a superstition, he got so upset with me. Now, of course, like, unreasonably so, but but that that was him. So that's what I grew up with. I grew up with someone who would regularly rail against these things. And instead of me, you know, sometimes people switch to the other side, other side when that happens. I grew up with that bias. I'm like, yeah, stuff, that's all BS and stuff like that. Now, starting from there, when I started watching the show, I was ready to sort of like laugh and, and dismiss everything. But I got to say, it tricked me because the first, uh, I'd say the first four episodes had a mix and it was actually what I thought was a healthy mix. The first one was about um, psychedelics. And, you know, honestly, psychedelics are, st are things that I haven't, you know, experimented much with in my life. And I, you know, I was very biased as a younger person against that because in general, I sort of detested the notion of, of drugs because of what drugs, illegal drug trade had done to my country and of Colombia, you know, but I have since, you know, over the years learned that, oh, okay, well, there's more to the story. Apparently there are some beneficial uses to some of this, but it's not trivial, blah, 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 blah. So I found it to be an interesting episode because they were exploring what psychedelics can do to open you up and to be more receptive and to have deeper conversations and all these things. Now, interspersed with that, they, there's a level of, you know, like they talk about different dimensions or out of body. Oh, there's a, there's a level of that, but, but I was okay with it. It was like a little bit of BS with a little bit of interesting new data. The second episode I was even more comfortable with because it was about cold therapy. And cold therapy is something that I've actually been following for years. And it was about a guy, Wim Hof, that I had been following for years, following as in learned about and have watched videos. Uh, I, have we talked about Wim Hof before? No, we, we, we have the answer is we have, because remember, assume we have, <laughs> yeah. we've talked about it. So I like that episode. It, it, it didn't have as much of the foo-foo stuff. I mean, his whole thing is about breathing methods and meditation and cold therapy. And all of them have, you know, to varying degrees shown, uh, to, to have beneficial effects. So I thought that was good. Uh, then as the episodes went on, I started thinking, okay, maybe, maybe I was wrong. Because uh, then the next one was about women discovering their own biology and looking at their vaginas and things. And, you know, that's a good thing. Uh, then they had one about better diet leading to a healthier lifespan and stuff. Again, all of these had a little bit of interspersed here or there. You know, they'd be a little spiritual this, spiritual that. 
But then by the time they got to the last two, I almost felt like the whole thing was a bait and switch. Because the last two in the in the season were about energy and about uh, like uh, an intuitive intuitive person uh, reading everyone, like a medium, basically a medium. That's the word. So that that's where I was like, "Oh, you, you got me." Because like the first few ones, I'm like, "Okay, okay, okay, I'm gonna give you the benefit of the doubt." And then by those last two, I'm like, "No, you did what I was thinking you were gonna do." So so I'd say that. If I were rating the the season, the first few episodes, I'd give it a decent rating. And then at the end, I was like, nope, I'm getting off this train. Interesting. Yeah, a lot of times that's what the marketers will do. They will start with something that is scientifically sound and something that's accepted and something that the reader will not have a hard time going along with. And then there's always that point where they'll make this leap about halfway through their discussion. Like mm-hmm. one one of the, I don't know if I'm making this up or I've actually read this kind of thing, but they'll say something like, so we all understand in this, you know, for the experts that the our reality is at the base level mm-hmm. constructed of strings and, and right. these vibrating strings. And they'll talk about string theory for a little bit, quantum physics, these kinds of things, uh, quantum entanglement, these kinds of ideas that are sound science according to the current right. model. And you'll, as a reader, you're like, oh, okay, well, all these science – they might – if it's a documentary style, they'll actually get physicists and astrophysicists mm-hmm. to actually talk about how things are ent- ent- entwined or how things are string or vibrations, these kinds of things. And then about halfway through what the presentation, it'll be something like, and that's why when <laughs> you uh, – like what, what's one of the ways they use this? Well, like one, one of the common ways with quantum physics is the idea that nothing exists until an observer observes it, right? That, that kind of concept. And so – but then they'll, they'll say like, so you make your own reality, Right. And, and then, then you can see how they could drive that to a billion, right? Right. Like it's, it's the yeah. Or or this machine that vibrates at a certain frequency. Oh yes. You know, gets in touch with your quantum reality. Yes, right. The crystals and all that stuff. Yes. Right. There's always this leap where they'll start in a sound area that they probably don't really understand. Right. Because even the experts don't understand string theory, and so you and I could never understand it. So it's the uh, Feynman. If you think you understand quantum physics, you don't understand quantum physics. <laughs> right. And so then they always make this leap, you know, anyway. Um, but uh, so the one thing I can comment on, and thanks for doing all that watching of Goop, Berto. <laughs> um, this uh, Sam from Scotland was super served in that way. Uh, but the psychedelic therapy, I, we recently did an episode on psychedelic therapy. I interviewed someone who specializes in that modality and in that research. And she is extremely responsible in the way she communicates about it, which is to say that we don't have enough data yet to uh, know if psychedelics in therapy helps anything. We're studying it. We're looking at it. Uh, There seems to be some indication that some people might benefit from it in some ways under some circumstances. But the news reports are blown way out of proportion. And I'm guessing the goop you know, you tell me what the gist of that episode was because I suspect it was blown way out of proportion. What what was their point in that yeah, episode? Yeah, okay. So so they had a mix of people go down on this trip 
and they, both literally and figuratively, like they went to a different place. It was very tropical and stuff. I forget where it was, like Costa Rica or something. And and they went on trips. Um, they were doing these mushrooms, a few other things. Um, but they had a mix of different people. Some of them were drug users. Some of them had never done anything like this. But a lot of this was about how life changing and permanent like how this would let you make permanent changes not just temporary changes and like they they filmed it in such a way where it really seemed like wow this is transcendental and i mean i gotta say that was sort of not new to me in that i have a lot of friends in the sort of dj world and i in the early 2000s this is all i would hear about about how like, oh, I heard about this place. You can go do this ayahuasca trip or, oh, my gosh, you got to try ecstasy or you will change forever. I, I, this is a constant topic. And um, so from that perspective, I didn't take it so much as like this is scientifically proven. It was more like, okay, I've seen this subculture. And I, I, I mean, I, I buy that there, are, that there are some people that can go through an experience like this and get some positive things out of it. And they weren't presenting it in a way that was like, Therefore, this is what everyone should be doing. It was more like, here's uh, we're opening our minds to new things. For a long time, these substances have been banned, and you can't even do research with them, and all these things. And, and I was like, okay with it. That's why I said it was like a healthy mix of like BS with a little bit of facts. Um, and the people that they were showing, I didn't feel it was that manipulative. Like the the scenes they were showing with them doing the drugs and stuff. I didn't feel like anyone was like acting like, oh, now I see the light. The world has changed. In fact, there was uh, there were a few scenes where it's like, well, I don't know. The effect was medium or there, there was a little bit of balance to it. So that's my experience of that episode. Yeah, interesting. Did they have anyone come on there and say, by the way, we don't have the research yet. So we can't say if this is actually effective or it's just placebo. Did anyone say that? Um, I feel like they, there were a couple different quote unquote experts that they kept intermixing in there um i do think there was a little bit of that earlier on the episode uh i don't remember oh it was in jamaica by the way that's where it was uh but they definitely had someone speaking that was a therapist that swore by it and i I felt like on balance i would say that if i didn't know any better and i watched that episode i'd be like okay this is a thing i gotta do it so if you're interested in this topic, listen to the episode on psychedelic therapy. It came out in tw- early 2020. I talked with an actual researcher, an actual practitioner, not some bullshit uh, person who just took drugs or just someone who happens to have some anecdotal stories about how it benefits. Listen to that episode. Uh, that expert it talks in a very responsible, very measured, balanced way about the research and about the potential of it actually helping people and the and her conclusion and she and she this is her how she makes part of her living was to you know, to do this kind of research and to do uh, this kind of therapy and her conclusion is we just don't know yet uh, we could yeah. be tricking ourselves into believing that this has any effect uh, because there is such a thing called placebo and Berto, I know all the people you're talking about you know the DJ world who would take psychedelics have any of them due to their drug use improved their lives in any kind of noticeable way i I know that you and i could point to them and be like many of them their lives are worse now 
probably because of drug use, at least as a factor, right? Yeah. At the very least, there is a curve like with everything else. And some people did better. And who knows if it was because of this, that or the other thing. And some people didn't. But I certainly couldn't point to that community and say, oh, man, I missed out. (laughs) You know? Right. Uh, Now, can psychedelics be wonderful? Absolutely. Just like any substance, just like any experience could be wonderful. Uh, Going on a hike. Uh, drinking alcohol with your buddies, getting high on pot. Uh, You know, there's all sorts of experiences one can have that can be, you know, very meaningful to one person. But does it actually produce the kind of outcomes that are being claimed? Even the word therapy, psychedelic therapy, that implies that it cures and has outcomes that reduce symptoms. And we just don't know the answer to that question yet. The The early research seems to indicate that for some people, it might help kind of in at least the short term and for a smaller percentage of people, maybe the long term. Uh, the, the, kinds, the kinds of things that make sense to me that they're actually looking into are for some people, addiction. It, it's, it seems to help in conjunction with other kinds of addiction treatment to help people to be sober. Uh also, people who are dying of a terminal illness, it helps. It has been known to help some people cope better with the fact that they're dying. But again, in the same way, if you have a profound religious or spiritual experience, it's a, it has a similar effect, right? And psychedelics seem to produce that in people's minds. Um, for for everyone, no. Uh, for some, seems so. Uh, but. The fact that a lot of people are emailing me talking about how they're reading online about how psychedelics are going to cure people's PTSD or cure people's depression, there, there's no evidence of that yet. Now, in the future, I'm guessing there will be some evidence that it could help with some people as an adjunct to all the other methods of therapy that we absolutely do know help people. Uh, yeah, I could see that happening in the same way that if I did my evidence-based treatment for trauma and also had people go on hikes once a week and reflect on their lives, might there be a, a for some people, a, a bit better outcome as a result of that? Sure. There's this attraction in our society for a certain amount of people that psychedelics or drugs in general maybe is like going to save the world. Right. And uh, there just doesn't seem to be any evidence of that. Now, I could be wrong. The data could show later on, 10 years from now, that it is going to save the world, but I doubt it. And I'm old enough to have seen a lot of these trends happen. When Prozac came out, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when Prozac came out, the studies were so strong and the the emphasis on that those data was so overblown that you literally had people walking around who weren't depressed asking their <laughs> doctors to give them Prozac because it was sold to the public as it solves all your problems. It makes that you... Seems, uh, that seems so prosaic now. But you remember that, right? In the 90s? Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. It was like there was... It was, you know, people thought, oh, well, I want to be happier too. So I'll, I'll take... Wait, no. I said, yeah, Prozac. That's what I mean, right? Wait, is yeah. my brain working right now? Yes, it is. Uh, for some reason, <laughs> I thought I said Viagra. But anyway, so <laughs> so Prozac. Um, I remember when everyone was taking Viagra just for, for the fun of it. Yeah, <laughs> SSRIs. And 
and as time has gone on, we have found a diminished outcomes because that's kind of what happens in this really disappointing way. The margin of success, so just to drill down on this for a little bit, I don't remember the exact uh, percentages, but so you have depressed people, people suffering from major depressive disorder. You give them Prozac. Well, there's a there's a certain amount of people that get worse. There's a certain amount of people who stay the same, and there's a certain amount of people that get better. And there's and they also have a control group where you give them a placebo and tell them that it's Prozac when it isn't. It's just it's just a sugar pill. And so, and so the the percentage was somewhere around like forty percent or thirty percent get better. So we're oh. still talking about not that many people respond well to Prozac, but some do, which is something. But yeah. the difference between that percentage and the control group of the placebo was pretty small. So you would have like twenty percent would get better on the placebo, oh. and like thirty five percent would get better on Prozac. And again, don't quote me on those those statistics, but it was somewhere in that range. I see. And but it was reported as the happy drug that would solve everyone's problems. And of course mm-hmm. when you when you look at the statistics it's like well for some for sure, but not for everyone and it's kind of not that much greater of an effect as placebo. So as time has gone on over the past 20 years of more research, that margin has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller mm-hmm. and smaller. This is a this is a well-known effect in in particularly psychological research, there's a lot of speculation as to why that would be. Uh, usually what it means is that our ability to be more precise in our studies gets better over time is one idea. Uh, but anyway, the point is, is that with psychedelic – so with psychedelic therapy, there's a lot of promise with these early studies – but I suspect it over time, 20 years from now, the difference between the psychedelic therapy trials and the placebo will get smaller and smaller and yeah. smaller. Now, for some, it will be useful, but it will not be effective for most people is my guess, even based on the early uh, reporting. Now, if if you're suffering from something like addiction or something else that is purported to – uh, it's to be helpful for. If you go to an actual clinician who specializes in this and can keep you safe during your trip, then maybe it's worth trying for sure. You know, try, trial and error, see see if it works out. But you have to do it with someone that understands the protocol. What a lot of people are misunderstanding is, I have PTSD. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna recreationally take LSD, you know, tomorrow, and I'll be cured of it. That's not <laughs> how the therapy works. You have to be. The, the way the protocol is, there's two therapists that are with you the entire time that you're tripping for like eight hours. And there's, wow. there's, there's pre-sessions and there's post-sessions. And it's, so the psychedelic event is actually a minority of the time you spend with these treatment therapists who understand how to treat you in general at, mm. with the psychedelic event being part of that. So it's not like, it's not like just something you take. The same goes for Prozac. Right. When people take Prozac alone, that the outcomes pale in comparison to when you take Prozac with a therapist that knows how to w- help you along the way as you're using the substance. So there's, it's always probably going to be a part of a larger therapeutic protocol that involves talk therapy. It's like seeing a, a report that um, potentially some chloroquine drug 
might help with coronavirus, and then you just go and get some under-the-counter chloroquine and start self-medicating constantly. <laughs> yeah, fish food. Anyway, <laughs> let's take a break, and when we get back, let's erase our uh, minds of that thought and talk about something else. What do you say, Berto? Let's do it. So, Berto, if Goop were to make an episode in which they're trying to convince everyone to become a patron of the podcast at patreon.com, what would that episode sound like? Many of us have heard that at the most fundamental level, everything we see, everything we hear, everything we touch is made up of tiny, tiny little vibrations that can barely even be said to exist. But what's more, reality itself doesn't become reality until you become part of that reality, see it, hear it, experience it. So this podcast is not real until you become a patron of it. And in doing so, you become one all of reality. The ASMR people are really getting super served right now. <laughs> so I wanted to make an announcement. I've been making this announcement with various people, but I really wanted to make it with you, Berto, in that we gave out two scholarships recently. Woo! And you were a big part of that. You read all the applications just like me and Stacy did as well, my wife. And we gave out, if you don't know, listeners, we gave out two $2,000 scholarships. So we gave out a total of $4,000 during these difficult times, which people need the money in particular, so that they can continue to get their degree to make the world a better place. The scholarship Amazing. was designed to uh, in reward those individuals who have already made the world a better place through actual actions and who are in graduate school to become a mental health clinician and plan on using those uh, skills to make the continue to make the world a better place. And one of the $2,000 scholarships was actually – the funds was donated by an anonymous patron. She just gave me $2,000 and I said, well, what do you want us to do with it? She's like, well, do whatever you want. And I said, well, how about we give it as a scholarship to someone? And I said, I'd really like to put your name on this because you should be honored for, <laughs> for giving us this money. And she's like, no, no, I just want to – just call me an anonymous patron. Wow. So that, yeah, so that was pretty amazing. And how narcissistic. <laughs> and the other $2,000 was siphoned off of the patron money. You know, when you become a patron, know that part of your money goes towards various philanthropic efforts that we've been doing, including giving money to homeless organizations, to LGBTQ organizations, to animal organizations like Pet Finder. So, uh, so there's that. Just a little rundown on the two people that – Berto, Stacy, and I chose to be given the funds. Charlotte Rosario is a woman from India, and she's currently getting her psychology counseling degree at the University of British Columbia. And she's already done a lot to make the world a better place. And she also plans on uh, helping her home community in India with her new skills. She has said that her you know, her area in India lacks a lot of mental health services. And also Haley Wilson, who has is getting 
her master's degree from Oregon State University. And uh, she says in her essay, Growing up in the Bible Belt as a queer teen, I have felt the weight of prejudice and have been affected by the actions of those who do not understand nor value diversity. And she also writes, because she's, she's already helping a lot of people, domestic violence, sexual assault, human trafficking. And she also wrote, sometimes I, I am really tired when I come home, but I wake up every day wanting to help those in need and hear those who have not been heard. So she's definitely deserving of the scholarship, and we congratulate both Haley Wilson and Charlotte Rosario Woo! on those funds. Amazing. So patron, upper upper tier patron Natasha from California, whom we met at one of our yeah. live shows, she wrote in and said the following, Berto. Something's really bumming me out lately, and I realize that there's not really any representation of it in the media. I'm sure you're familiar with the term friend zone, but no one talks about but no one talks about getting dick zoned, which is so much worse. When you dick when you, zone. Yeah, so and I like this. So when you think a guy is your friend and it seems like he wants to hang out because you get along and you, and are a likable person, but he really just wants to fuck. Uh. If you don't want to fuck, suddenly you're not friends and maybe you're not as likable as you think it's so so shitty and even typing this there's this voice in my head that guys are allowed to do that because well they're guys but it's a really hurtful experience and has happened to me so many times i know that there's going to be this reactionary defensive voice of well not all men do this but plenty of men are decent and would genuinely want a platonic relationship with a woman well i guess so I have literally I have literally one male friend that's never hit on me and I know a lot of dudes. My only female friends that have pulled it off are butch lesbians. Berto, <laughs> what do you think about friend zone and being dick zoned? Dick zoned. Welcome to the dick zone. Well, I mean, the funny thing is I'm going to go the opposite direction, but you're going to disagree because we've disagreed because everything we've talked about, we've always talked about a billion times before. So I believe the the hairy part of the Harry met Sally equation, which is that in general... Uh, I thought you were going to say the hairy part of the dick zone. <laughs> I believe in the hairy part of the dick zone. No, I, I just believe that... Uh, and obviously it's based on my experience, but clearly other people have this experience because it wouldn't be in when Harry met Sally. Otherwise, no one else would have had it. Um. So I think that when a guy is with a woman and she is above a certain level of attractiveness for that person, for that guy, um, they will develop desire. And that that desire is uh, usually or often kept under wraps unless they detect that there might be a little bit there that is reciprocated. And unfortunately, a lot of guys, a lot of us guys are not very good at detecting what is and what is not reciprocation. Um, and so when that happens, or maybe because the desire gets to be too much, then they like break the fourth wall and they're like, I love you or I want to be with you. I can't stand being just friends. Uh, and, the, and the truth is it's because this whole time 
they've been having all these uh, imaginations, all these like fantasies of like, oh, she's so cute. I wish I could, we could be more than just friends, blah, blah, blah. Um, now, I'm just speaking as a guy. So obviously I don't have the stats in front of me and it could all be BS. It could, this could just be me and maybe the guy who wrote When Harry Met Sally. Uh, but that is my perspective. Now, I know of people that at least claim that they can have perfectly fine relationships or a professional or others uh, with with women and not have those feelings. And I have to say that as I've gotten older, that has become easier for me to do, to partition that off. I think when I was younger, it was really hard for me to draw those boundaries. I think a lot of my uh, experiences as a young person also influenced that difficulty. Now that I'm a little older and I've gone through therapy and all these things, I am much better at being able to draw boundaries and especially around professional situations. I actually feel that uh, professionally, like in my work, I am sort of like a robot when it comes to this, meaning a, a good robot. Like I feel like I've gotten to the point where I I just, I'm incapable. I mean, this sounds like too much, but I'm sort of almost incapable of any transgression because I have, I'm not myself. Like I'm constantly not myself when I am at work, when I am, you know, like doing professional duties, I'm constantly not myself because, uh, yeah, I don't you know. But uh, and so I, think I, by I constantly- just want to chime in yeah. on that because I, I, I find that to be a very ridiculous way of, of framing it. Unless I'm not understanding you, which is possible. Uh, I, I agree with you that you're saying that through a lot of therapy, because to be specific, you were sexually abused by a woman, an older woman. An yes. older girl when you were young, yeah. you were five, she was 10 or something, right? 12. Yeah. 12. And this, what, this sexual abuse, as it does for many people, affects their development and their self-esteem and their sexual reactivity to other people. It essentially introduced this notion that when you relate to women, that you involve yourself in a secret exploitative uh, sexual action, sexual behavior. And the notion of consent isn't a question because you were never asked for consent, really, as to whether or not you wanted deep down to be doing these things. And so there's this template of sexuality. And so as you uh, were entering into adulthood, there was a lot of boundaries that you would break and you would become sexually attracted to women at work or, or, you know, f- girlfriends or wives of your friends. And you, through your therapy, recovered from the trauma sufficiently and also discovered yourself and also discovered how to have close relationships without elements like this that can get your needs met. And thus, now you ha- don't have that symptom anymore. You're framing it like you're not yourself and that you're a robot at work, I would call you more yourself and more of a human being because you can see straight sexually now. Why are you framing it as you're not yourself and you're a robot? Because if you spend time with me outside of work, uh, I'm someone who is, I like to flirt. I constantly say sexual innuendos when I'm making jokes or talking or whatever. Uh, I... But I, why know, if I'm dancing? It, okay, I'm but so dancing in, very hot and close. And well, with people who presumably want that, right? Yeah, sure. Okay, but no one wants that at work. So, well, that's my point. So, at work, 
I don't make any jokes. Like because that's the right the thing. Realm or comments Good. of any sort or because any that, of because that's the right thing to do, Berto, and you know that. But that's and, not me. That's what I'm saying. It's well, it why is, the is right it thing not you? It, it's why can't it also be you to because be to to be kind to other human beings and not impose your silliness on them at work when they don't want it. Well, but then we could say, like, why do I do that outside of work? Why, why should I because, have... Because you also have a part of you that wants to do that with context and people that appreciate it. No one appreciates it at work, so you're not, you're not going to do it there, which is good. And you are doing it in your social life because the people, cause you know the people around you. If you met a brand new person, you wouldn't do it with them because you don't know them. And why is it not you at work, but you in the real life? I just find that to be a weird narrative. Well, it's I guess because the the person that I am at work is uh, someone that like let me put it this way: when I retire, I don't want to keep being that way. I want to be the normal way, the normal me. Now, I guess what we're getting with confused with people here is, who don't want you to be that way. No, that's I think that's the part that we're getting confused with. Like on the one hand, um, I I don't want to conflate like boundary crossing with. The other parts, right? Like, but I'd say that I have, how do I say this? Like in the real world, outside of work, if I see someone attractive at like a a dance club and we start talking, I am going to be attracted and we're going to flirt and whatever, right? But at work, that's not going to happen. At at a dance club, if if you saw an attractive woman... And she gave you any indication initially that she didn't want to talk with you. Would you continue to flirt with her? No, of course. Well, not now, but like, right. but that's not, I'm not, but I don't know if so, that would happen so, or not happen. At work, so my right? narrative, like, I which, don't even go down that path. So my narrative, which is not yours and you're free to have yours, but my narrative of this is that you have matured to and healed to a point where you are no longer imposing your sexual impulses on people who don't want it. And in certain contexts, you're more likely to be around people who will, at the very least, be okay with it and might even really want it. And in other contexts, you know that no one wants it. And so you're not doing it there. And if you're at a club and no one wants it, you're not going to do it there. But you might try it out there because it's a greater likelihood in that context that someone might appreciate it. So that's my narrative. <laughs> it's not your yeah, but, narrative. But your narrative is a very convenient recent realization that our society has made, not the very well understood wisdom for millennia, right? Like, in other words, we just recently, very, very recently, I'm talking about within the last decade, really, came to realize as a society that, okay, it looks like we're going to have to have very specific rules about what can and cannot happen at a work environment. And I'm not talking about sexual abuse. I'm not talking about coercion. I'm not even talking about any of that stuff. I'm talking about the kind of jokes, the kind of comments that can be made, the kind of interactions like, you know, touching someone on the shoulder or hugging. None of that stuff flies anymore. And I get it. And so I don't do any of that. But, but... That is not my my. That is not how I am in in the real world, right? In the real world, I, and I, especially in the culture I grew up with, it's a very touchy culture, and it is a, it, you know, like, anyways. So my my point is that I'm I've learned to live with like this different side of me that 
in my inside of my mind, I still have the thoughts, right? Like if I'm in a meeting with an attractive woman, I'm my mind is still racing, and I'm and I'm just gotten better and better and better at just letting that happen without me, you know, being as distracted or, or have you know having as much trouble with that or whatever, um, and not manifesting it. And other things too, like uh, watching how much I drink at a at a uh, work function or any of that. There's, you know, there, there used to, for a long time, there used to be so many times where I was still tempted to make the funny joke after someone said something that could be taken two ways. And then I, like, years ago, just stopped, 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 and I just never even, like, I almost don't even hear those comments anymore. But that's very different from me outside of work. So it's, it's like I've definitely trained myself to be, a, there's a work Berto and there's a non-work Berto. And the work Berto is is most of the parts that are the non-work Berto minus some of those elements. Yeah, and I appreciate that. And, you know, it's wonderful that you're doing that. I would frame that not as a male thing, but as the effect of sexual abuse that you went through. Regardless of gender, when one has been sexually abused, there is a path for many of people to defend against the abuse to become over-sexualized and to uh, ignore your you know, understanding or to ignore signals that are you know, seen by the individual that you shouldn't do things and to move ahead otherwise, if that makes any sense. So, that so, does make sense. But so I, I would frame yeah. your experience not as that of a male, but that of someone who, who's recovering from pretty horrible sexual, ongoing sexual abuse and untreated sexual abuse as a child. I, I uh, wouldn't disagree with you on, on many fronts with that. But, but the thing is, we're mixing a lot of different things because like in regards to the original question, um, unless we're saying that pretty much every male that she interacts with minus one had this kind of trauma and abuse or something similar, that why, why, why do so many women report that so many of their male friends end up wanting more than being friends. Why is it even a culture? Why is it even a thing? Like the whole friend zone, why is that even a thing? Good. So I'm glad you're bringing it back, which makes sense. But before getting to that, I just want to comment on a few other things you're saying. So you said that only until rather recently have we as a society understood that not doing certain kinds of things, like commenting on a woman's outfit or how sexy she looks or something. Only recently have we realized that um, that is not okay. I'm sure you know what I'm about to say. Women have always known that. It's only recently, and you were framing it as a society, but really it's male society has finally realized that to some extent we still have a long way to go. But if you asked women in the 60s, how do you feel about all the comments? None of them would have been like, yay. They'd be like, I wish people would take me more seriously at work. So the- I, I, Sorry, sorry. I, I have to take issue with it because I, I don't disagree that if you had asked someone, it's the whole argument. Like if, if you had asked, people are like, oh, you know, a lot of slaves were happy. No, no, bullshit. Like if you honestly had asked anyone in any disadvantaged situation, like – at, at most, you would have gotten a Stockholm Syndrome response, but more likely you would have gotten the truth if, you were, if they had the safety to give you the truth. Right. So I don't disagree with that. However, I'm talking about things like, look, when I was, um, when I was like in the year 2000, roughly, I was on a business trip. The, and year, I, 2000. the year 2000. And I had a picture on my phone 
uh, that I had gotten from someone. One of my friends had sent me a picture of like a gif. It was a gif of some naked lady doing something. Okay. I showed it to my male coworker. Not, it wasn't someone at work. I wasn't referring to anyone at work. There were no women around and nothing. It's just, I showed it to my male coworker. My male coworker, and it wasn't at work, but it was like, it was in a work trip. So still, my male coworker, who was older than me, looked at me and said, dude, that's inappropriate or something like that. And I was like, oh, okay, sorry, sorry. I didn't know that that was inappropriate. Why was it inappropriate? I would have showed it to my other friends, but not every friend I have. Some people I wouldn't have because I'm like, that. they probably would think that's inappropriate. But why did, I, why did I think it was appropriate to show a porno image or whatever to a male coworker? And then he, he drew a boundary. That's not, that's not, and now it happened to be a female, but what if I were gay and it was just a guy in the picture? Like that wasn't a female thing. That was a boundary that, it, that did, we weren't aware of. And I say we, because otherwise, why were there so many mandatory sessions that we had to go to? And, and women too. And, and the examples included both men and women. And there were, so yes, granted, more, more men were in the workplace in positions of power. So by, by statistics, of course, there were more of those situations. However, I don't think it was just about men and women. I think it was about behavior in general. Yeah. So getting back to the When Harry Met Sally situation, when I saw that movie in the 80s, I remember blanching at that scene and really arguing with the premise that – and I, I didn't realize that this was such a, this such a you know, dominant notion in society that – men and women can't be friends, that women can be friends with men, but men can't be friends with women. I guess we're talking about heterosexual people. Because I've always had really good friends who were men and really good friends who were women to this day. I, you know, you're one of my good friends. And I started this podcast with another one of my best friends, Lita Katipi, who was, has been a, I've been friends with her since we were in preschool, kind of, but, but definitely since we were like 16 to 17 years old. And have shared so many things together and never, you know, I, I don't want I anyway, the point is, is that I can I can be friends with women and and I've come to find that I was not necessarily the majority voice. Now, I know a lot of men out there listening, heterosexual men can raise their hand and say, yeah, I can I absolutely can be friends with women and have been friends with women without being attracted to them, or at the very least, not having the attraction a thing. I mean, one could say that I, you know, like uh, Ty, for example, <laughs> he's a hot dude, right? Yeah. Uh, your friend Ty. And when I saw him, I w- even though I'm heterosexual, I was like, wow, it's a hot dude. I, you know, I recognized his hotness <laughs> and, <laughs> and was just like, wow, you know, like, that guy's really hot. Uh, and there's other guys like that too. But at at, at, I guess because I'm heterosexual, the, the point is is that if I have a friend who's a woman who is attractive, I can recognize intellectually like, wow, she's attractive. But there's a pretty far gap between I recognize someone's attraction or I could imagine being attracted to that person and let's encourage those thoughts and behaviors and blood flow, so to speak. You know, there's a, there's a pretty big gap for for a lot of people. Now, I will also say that in my relationships over my 50 years of being on the planet, 49 years, because I'm open to being friends with women, there have been times when women have had a hard time being friends with me. 
that I've been friends with them. And then at some point, they, they vagina zone me, <laughs> where I've friend zoned them and they vagina zone me, where they want to have sex with me. And I will say, that kind of bums me out. It's like, why can't you just be a friend? Why do you have to shove us into this romantic zone? And, you know, did you really like me or was it only because you were attracted to me sexually? And I'm sure, Berto, you've had that experience as well. Yes. So so it, it's not a gender thing for me. Now, getting back to your question and Natasha's question, which is a very worthy one, which is, well, if you asked, you know, 100 men, 100 heterosexual men, 100 heterosexual women, how many of you have been dick zoned or vagina zoned? you're probably going to have a lot more women stand up and say, I have been dick zoned than the men saying I've been vagina zoned. Why is that? Well, we could speculate. And of course, your speculation, which is mine, but you tend to emphasize it more than I do. We don't have the data, but it's possible that men due to some biological disposition, testosterone development, whatever, that we have a greater likelihood of having attraction and sort of mate sexual mate radar is stronger than for people born with vaginas look what you got you got to give it to your mama what you got you got to get it put it in you give it away give it away give it away now so there's a lot of uh, uh speculations around that we would have to actually put humans in lab We'd have to raise humans in the lab under different circumstances to know actually the answer to this question. So we'll never know because culture does affect things. Now, we also know that from a very early age, girls and boys are taught what is acceptable for their gender and what is not. And one of the notions that is still around for young girls is it's unacceptable for them to be horny. It's unacceptable for them to be a slut. It's unacceptable for them to chase boys sexually. And the no, the opposite notion is given to boys. To be a man means to chase women. To be a man means to bag as many babes as possible. To be a man means to hit on everything that comes your way. And, it's, and this is encouraged through different experiences. Like you, you meet a group of other 15-year-old boys and you're 15 – and you don't know each other that well yet, and an attractive girl goes by. And to relieve the tension, someone comments on her sexuality. And then all the 15-year-old boys kind of bond around that. And that solidifies a notion of morality and of what makes you a boy, what makes you a man, what is good in life. And something different would happen with a group of 15-year-old girls, potentially. Not always, of course, but there is a there are trends around gender socialization. We like to think of ourselves as... Our preferences are our own and not affected by these experiences. But, of course, that's ridiculous and narcissistic to imagine that we aren't affected by society and those micro experiences. So all of those things, part biology, maybe definitely culture, points in the direction of creating a difference between heterosexual men and heterosexual women where the heterosexual men will have a – perhaps overactive notion of their uh, attraction radar and women might have a subdued uh, radar. And then as a result, you have these outcomes where you have a lot of women who will stand up and say, yeah, I've been dick zoned 
by 20 different guys that I thought were trying to be friends with me, but in fact, they were just trying to get down my pants. And you have a fewer amount of heterosexual men saying the same thing. Uh, that's what I'll say about that. Do you disagree with any of that, Berto? I don't. I No, for the most part, that sounds great. And I agree. Uh, I, I, I will only add that, um, you know, when one of the things that's I think that's the elephant in the room is that it's really hard and uncomfortable for us to tell someone that we're not attracted to them. Because when we start when we're little, it's so painful to like, you, you know, at first you're like the center of the universe of your family, at least if you're in a you know loving, healthy environment or somewhat. Because even me with like my split parents and stuff, like I was given a lot of adulation and praise by my dad and my grandparents and, and people and stuff. So I, I definitely, you know, felt, oh yeah, I'm pretty great. You know, I'm a pretty great little person. But then when you start like interacting with friends and with uh, girlfriends and stuff, all of a sudden this new realization sets in. It's like, oh, wait a minute. Hold on. Maybe not everyone thinks I'm great. And then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, I don't want to be your girlfriend. Wait, why not? What's wrong with me? Uh, and and that's really painful. And so I, I think it's really hard and painful for people to say, oh, yeah, no, sorry. I, I'm not physically attracted to you. I, I mean – I, I love our conversations. I love being uh, co-working on this, or I love that we take these trips. But I don't I don't want to have sex. That's not something I'm attracted to about you. That's really hard to have that conversation, and it hurts people's feelings, and blah, 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 blah. And because we can't easily or conveniently have those conversations, it goes unspoken. And then one side, and maybe it's a woman, maybe it's a man, assumes that they're both on the same page. Like, okay, since no one has brought it up, I'm assuming we're all aware that I'm not attracted. You must not be attracted. Well, whoever, whatever it is, we're not going to be even ta- talking about this. And then when one person broaches the subject, it's all of a sudden a shock. Wait, what? I thought we had an understanding. No, you didn't have an understanding. We never had the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the other thing I'll say to people out there is that friends last longer than romantic relationships in general. <laughs> And this is something that I recognized when I was a teenager, was that with my friends, girls and boys in high school, that those relationships potentially were forever, whereas romantic relationships would last like a week. <laughs> and I remember thinking, well, I, I, want, I want relationships. And so if you have a choice, sometimes it's better to go for the friend relationship than the romantic one because – and they're not mutually exclusive, of course. You can be friends with a past romantic or sexual person. But, uh, but the point is, is that for, for young men, maybe that's a value that is worth emphasizing for them. Because again, young men are taught that friendship and being vulnerable is, is for pussies and you need to be independent. And we like to think that we live in a post-sexist society, but my God, we really, really, really do not. I am positive that in a couple hundred years, they will look back at our society and it'll, to them, it'll be just a shade different from the 50s and the, and the, the 1920s and this kind of thing. Uh, uh, and Absolutely. And, and the other thing is this, when we're, when we're starting to date at least when I was, the model of what I was supposed to be doing was what I had seen in movies and TV, to your point about culture. It wasn't actually what parents and adults around me had said. 
I didn't see examples of it. I saw examples on TV and movies. And this is a problem, especially back in the 80s, but it's still a problem, probably even worse, who knows? And, and because the message I got as a young man, a uh, young boy or whatever, was, oh, yeah, yeah, look, look, um, we gloss over the physical attraction bit in movies and TV because really we're going to tell you that what really matters is underneath. And just believe that everyone believes that and that everyone is on the same page about that. And what you really have to do as a male, it doesn't matter if you're nerdy, it doesn't matter if you like are clumsy or whatever. It doesn't matter who the who you are at the start of the movie. You just need to do some grandiose gestures for the for the woman in this case, and um, probably spend some money and like. And, and then if you do the right set of grandiose gestures and maybe spend the right amount of money, it'll work out because that's what happens at the end of the episode of the movie. And I really had that notion built into my head. So I remember my way of courting women when I was, uh, you know, a kid was that I would like, okay, I'm going to show up after dark and like throw a rock at the window and they're going to see how much I really, you know, like it was that sort of notion. And and to put a fine point on, I think what you're getting at uh, is that the notion that was given to you was not only that the grand gesture was the thing to do, but that if you did that, the woman would respond the girl would respond and, and, and you deserved it. And like, I deserved it. You were Absolutely. entitled because you did all the right moves yes. to to the girl responding. That's what happens in the in the show, right? So it's yeah. it's not just yeah. that you're being romantic; it's that you're entitled to a I've to a res- it. yeah to a reci- you know to reciprocation. Yeah. And taken to the extreme, of course, that could lead down very dark paths. But even just even without date rape or any of that stuff, just the notion of like, well, what do you mean you're turning me down? I went through all this trouble. I earned it. I am the character in the movie. As far as I know, I am. it's my movie, not your movie. What the hell is happening here? And something else. The, um, the other part of it that's insidious, I swear to God, is the notion that the guy doesn't actually have to be interesting in any normal or approachable way. In fact, the more, you know, odd they are, that's actually great because in the end, their oddity will shine through. So what happens is that I didn't realize that to be interesting in general, I should just do get you know become interested in things and do activities, take up hobbies, get involved in clubs. And then when I'm asking a girl out, instead of saying, uh, do you want to go get food and I guess watch a movie? I could say, hey, I'm going hiking this weekend or Hey, I'm I'm in this like bowling club or whatever. Do you want to do this activity with me, or do you want to go to this book reading activity? Like something that is not just like let's go eat and watch a movie. That's the, the, my repertoire was. We're gonna go eat and watch a movie because everything else is gonna be these grandiose gestures. Well, and more specifically to what Natasha is saying, because you're giving advice to people who might need it, is to. Not assume that just because a woman is giving you attention and you're spending time with her, that this is a romantic road that you're on. And to value friendship from anybody and to also not feel entitled to romance from someone. Now, if you're desirous of romance, which most people are, and sex and companionship, there's nothing wrong with that. But to uh, just railroad every relationship with a woman into romance is potentially not the best way to live your life. 
you know, what Natasha is talking about here is that there's this very familiar term called friend zone, which is almost exclusively a reference to how men or boys are friend zoned by a heterosexual woman and how how terrible that is. Oh, that guy just got friend zoned or I'm always getting friend zoned. And I really appreciate what Tasha is saying is like, well, wait, the other side of the equation is kind of worse because she's getting dick zoned. <laughs> she, you know, the fact that they entered into a relationship that was probably explicitly friendship oriented. Now, of course, there are exceptions or I'm sure there are rare cases where the heterosexual woman gives the wrong impression that the male doesn't, quote unquote, misinterpret. But I'm guessing a lot of the situations, the woman heads into the relationship without any overt expression of romantic intention or sexual intention and has all the hallmarks of a friendship in the beginning, might even be explicit. And then she gets dick zoned and he hits on her. She says, I'm not attracted to you. And then he drops that friendship, drops that relationship. If if we're going to look at that from the outside of that, the woman got the raw end of the deal, not the dude. The woman was the one who started the relationship in a uh, you know co- coherent and uh, authentic way, and the guy was the one who was potentially hiding his intentions. Flag and- on the field, coach. Flag. Nope. 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 I'm not buying it, man. Because we're assuming that all of us have all these mo- mental models properly built in. And I know you're not because you know that that's not how society is. So there's no way guys know right off the bat that when someone is starting a conversation, starting a a, a relationship of some sort, that that is clearly delineated in one way versus another. Yeah, I get that. But that doesn't, right? de- but that doesn't deny the fact that as a society, we emphasize the bummer for the dude almost exclusively whenever we're referring oh, yeah, sure. to this That's event. Fair. We, we yeah. on the especially on the internet, which is which has a certain corner of it that's dominated by a bunch of incels and this yeah. you know incel leaning individuals. Many of our listeners are those people, and have asked us to pull them back from the brink, which is great for them to do. But this notion of like the fact that we have a term for it that's well known called friend zone, but we don't have any term for what the woman is going through, which is which is in my this view worse and and much less fair to the situation. Again. Aside from the rare times that I'm guessing Natasha never participated in, in which the woman led the man on in a way that we could all agree was unfair to the situation. I'm guessing that happens not very often. So I agree with you there. I guess I'm I'm a little – I question a little bit how unfair it is that like, okay, so you thought you had one kind of relationship. Clearly you hadn't. We're assuming good intentions here. So in the cases where there weren't, when someone was overly this way or that way, manipulative, etc., I'm, I'm saying like, fair, I concede. In the cases where it was like, you were just developing what, what you thought was a friendship, and then all of a sudden the person makes romantic intentions, and you're like, oh, I got dick sewn again. I'm like, yeah, that sucks for you. But it, it also sucked for them because, well, they, they don't know. They, they thought that it was developing in a way, and then now it was safe for them to come out with more romantic intentions. And it turns out, no. And so, yes, you both didn't get what you wanted. You wanted to continue being just friends. They wanted more. Neither of you got what you wanted. I feel like the right, the wrong approach would be to say, 
all you guys, you better not start a relationship with me if you're ever even going to possibly try to turn it romantic. I think that's the wrong approach. I think the right approach would be to say, hey, why don't we just acknowledge that because we're men and women or men and men and women and women, whatever it is, right? And we might be attracted to the opposite or the same sex, depending on the thing, that feelings might develop and we can't quite predict or, or always like prognosticate when and what, how those would develop. So it's if we could have open conversations along the way and not like not be so disappointed in either direction. And I realize that it's really hard, but like if we could just learn from parents and, and shows and teachers and stuff to be more open and at the same time less precious about all these interactions, I think it would go better because then the, the, the conversation would go like, you know, I know we've been spending a lot of time and um, I, I guess I'm starting to develop uh, feelings for you that are more than friendship, like romantic feelings. And then the other person would say, oh, Okay, well, unfortunately, I'm not. I still really enjoy our friendship, but I'm not really getting those feelings. Um, I'd be I'd be fine still being friends, but I definitely don't want to go in that direction. And the other person goes, oh, well, that's disappointing. But of course, I still want to be friends with you. I'll just have to redirect my romantic feelings elsewhere. Like if that's the kind of conversation we could have or, or, or the other outcome, which is, well, okay, that's unfortunate. And you know what? I don't know that I'm going to be able to deal with it because my, my mind just now can't get it out. So... Maybe we need a break, and I'm I'm very sorry to this. Oh yeah, I'm very sorry too. That's really hurtful, and but I'm glad we're having this conversation. Those kinds of things, and we're so incapable of it as humans. Totally agree, hundred percent. I can't believe we're agreeing about a conversation about <laughs> about gender. Uh, I've had conversations like that before. Uh, I have had I have been in those conversations. I can think of one time where a, a woman had expressed that her interest in. We went through those steps together, and yeah. She cried, and I, I might have cried along with her a bit. And there was a grief, period. And then we picked up our friendship where it left off. And, and then you had makeup sex. <laughs> <laughs> and there was – because I valued the friendship, and so did she. And so, you know, we navigated our way through that. But I can absolutely imagine an experience for a woman like Natasha where it's like time after time – she befriends a man and maybe maybe even after the fifth time, she's like, so I just want to be clear. I just want to be friends. There's there's nothing romantic going on here. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then like a couple weeks later or a year goes by. I know you said that, but. Yeah. And then and then he hits on Natasha. Natasha's like, remember, I said I'm not attracted to you. I don't. Yeah. I, I really value our friendship. And then and then he bounces and they're they're not friends again. You know, I can absolutely imagine someone going through that. And it's just that's really unfortunate. Now. Like you said, everyone is suffering in this situation. And really what is uh, the <laughs> message that we want to get across to people is like for everyone deserves to have the relationships that they need to have in their lives. Um, they, they're not entitled to that, of course, but they, they do deserve that. I, I believe that. How do we get there? You know, For the men who have a hard time getting a romantic relationship and really want that, um, they deserve to have that. Uh, they don't. They're not entitled to it, but there, you know, there's usually a way. And when they run into these kinds of repetitive situations, because you know, you see people online. It's like I keep getting friend zoned, and I just want to, uh, you know, I just want that person to become a client so I can really like sit down with them. Because I have actually had, I had, a, I've had clients who have come to me specifically with that complaint. They wouldn't have said I was I was being friend zoned, but they would have said that. They've had a lifetime of difficulty getting a romantic relationship going 
or even just a friendship for that matter. And uh, there's there's a lot of reasons for this. And this is why I want to do a deep dive. I, I want to do like a series of episodes on loneliness. You know, I did a whole series of episodes on attachment theory. Well, I want to do a deep dive on all because I get so many different questions, you know, the incel questions we get or this sort of question about being friend zoned. All there's so many different questions I get from people. A lot of you listeners have sent me questions like this, where it's like, I'm lonely. I, I I know that you keep saying to cultivate secure attachments, but you know, I, I it's just not happening. And I kind of feel like the world is such that it's impossible for me to actually have those kinds of relationships. You know, with yeah. the Tinder generation or the hookup generation or the internet narcissist. And I'm always, when I hear these kinds of things, I'm like, well, that's not how I experience the world. I experience the world as open to friendship and deep relationships because that's what I have. And some people be like, well, it's because you're older. I know younger people who have this too. So there's these notions that are developed in people that uh, I think are, are counterproductive. I get why they develop. And so I think that this friend zone phenomenon is just a larger, a part of a larger issue that a lot of people are suffering from that I feel like I don't really understand. And I, I want <clears throat> to go into all the different disorders, obviously, that are related to this, like avoidant personality, social anxiety. But I also want to get into what are the different, I want a system of categorization of what kind of lonely person are you? Because mm-hmm. I imagine there are a lot of profiles that are different from each other as to why someone is lonely and thus what is causing that loneliness and thus how to get out of that loneliness. Yeah. Because it, it's, it, it, it would it'd be tempting to say, well, all loneliness is due to X or due to three different possible factors. But I have a feeling like there's hundreds of profiles of how someone – will email me and say, I'm lonely. I, I feel like I don't have a way out of that. And I right. want to get to know that primarily because I want to give those profiles to people and have them explore and try on each of those profiles and say like, oh, I think that one – or like these two profiles sound like me. And then you have an idea of maybe how to get out of that. Huh. That sounds fascinating. Are you going to do these uh, things about loneliness uh, all by yourself then? Well, uh, why? Are you trying to invite yourself? <laughs> I was just making a joke because they're about loneliness. Oh, I get. So I had a funny notion while you were talking a little earlier. Um, so you know how if, let's say I'm, I meet you at a bar or I'm seeing you at a bar and I start hitting on you and you could easily say to me, oh, um, I'm sorry, I, I'm not uh, homosexual or I'm not into men or whatever. And then if, if same thing, if I am a if I am into men and, and a woman starts hitting him on me, I could say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm into men, I'm not into women. And mo- maybe I'm wrong about this, but I feel like most people would be like, oh, okay, I get it. And like, it's kind of an easy letdown, you know, it's like, oh, it's not me, it's like you, it's, I get it. So I was thinking, okay, well, what if we just like made it to the individual, like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not an Umberto sexual. You know, <laughs> like, it's not you, it's just that I'm not an Umberto sexual. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> but that's the whole point is that, when people are rejected, they personalize it. I know. <laughs> uh, which, which, which is not necessarily a wrong conclusion because yeah. if you were someone different and maybe looked different or acted different, they would be attracted to you. So, well, yeah. So. And, and I guess that's the, that's the elephant that I was talking about is that, look, it's a fact. And this is something we all have to grapple with as we grow older. Oh, 
oh, okay, I guess I'm not this. I thought I was this. I thought I was the perfect this, or I thought I was going to be an NBA star. Or I th- And there's so many thoughts that when we're, and at some point, we have to be, oh, like, not everyone likes me. I'm not attractive to everyone. In fact, there's a lot of people that think I'm ugly. There's a lot of people that think I speak too loud. There's a lot of people that think I sound nasally or whatever the hell your thing is. And and you start realizing this. And that's why I think a lot of older people, not everyone, but a lot of them, start being more comfortable with themselves finally. And, and you, you see this a lot with actors. You'll see these actors like Danny DeVito and stuff put themselves in like incredibly embarrassing situations on screen <laughs> and but they're just so comfortable with who they are yeah like being <laughs> naked and sweaty coming out of a couch <laughs> I, I, i'm re-watching it's always sunny from the beginning yes, yes like it's one of the main reasons why i still have a hulu account is because it all of it's always sunny is available on hulu yes yeah it's such a great show i'm on the episode where they go they try to go uh, camping, I think, and they get a trailer, oh and they God. never make it out of Philadelphia. <laughs> they <you know>? never go. <laughs> yeah, um, and they take D's car. It's just, oh, a, it's just a hilarious, hilarious episode. It's the episode where Max says, "I'm going to start calling people Bozo more often." Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Bozo. What's wrong with you, Bozo? <laughs> and then he's like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to call people Bozo." You know, it's just such a funny. <laughs> okay, just I asked on Facebook. Uh, for people to maybe chime in about what they wanted us to talk about. So I want to honor at least some of those people. Top fan Samantha says that she loves hearing about gripes. So, Berto, do you have a gripe of wrath? Gripes of wrath. And by the way, we recently had a rerun in which I think it was about attachment parenting. And at the end of the episode was when we actually developed the the phrase gripes of wrath. I I – I totally forgot about this, but it's you, me, and Mandy, and I and I said and I said. Um, so I want to start a new segment of the podcast where we talk about complaints, and but I don't know what to call it. So I sort of threw it out to you and Mandy, and I was like, it's sort of like complaining or you know, sort of griping about something, and then I, it's it was a pretty quick road, but eventually you said gripes of wrath. Yeah, I love my puns, don't I? And and I quickly glossed over it yeah 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 how about and you know i was because i apparently didn't wasn't as turned on by gripes of wrath but it's funny because it was the same with tougher bluff you know it was a uh-huh. similar i remember you said it and i was like that doesn't sound right that doesn't and, sound like anything but i couldn't come up with anything better anyway so give me a gripes of wrath Berto. oh my gosh okay so i was i was complaining to you about this last week because it happened to me last week i spent an inordinate amount of money to buy a new, quote-unquote, top-of-the-line analog-to-digital, digital-to-analog converter. Long story short, it's a thing that lets me get audio from the outside of my computer to the inside of my computer and then back out. And it was, like, super hyped on their marketing site like they always are. And I read reviews, and they were awesome. So excited. Spent all this money. Got the thing. And, you know, there's a lot of things right now that are bad. This was something that made me happy for a moment. I'm like, oh, I got this new thing. Yeah, I spent money, but it's going to make me happy. And How much was it? Oh, I don't want to say. It was a lot of money. Tell me. I want to know. Oh, my gosh. Because these things generally run. These things generally run like for $50. You know what I mean? It's embarrassing. So so was it $500? It's more than that. More? (laughs) Was it $1,000? 
Uh, let's just leave it at that. Yes. Oh my sure. god. Sure. Whatever helps you sleep at night. Okay, so I'm saying. I mean, so, so just so everyone knows, <laughs> this is Birdo's mo: is that uh, he he loves to spend his money on things and on audio things, and sometimes <laughs> it audio. makes sense, right? Because it's like you you don't want a crappy guitar; you want a good guitar. Well, and, sorry. And to, parentheses. To be fair, it had been about. 12 years since I have done any major upgrades to any of my audio gear. Yeah. Yeah. So this was potentially you're going to use it for recording uh, your music and, and for stuff. For what we're doing right now, for recording my music, all that yeah. stuff. So if and, you were and, just yeah. buying for podcasting, you would have gotten a much cheaper thing? Is that what you're saying? Well, so the thing I have right now, which works fine, which is what I'm still working, the main issue I have with it is that it it, um, it has started giving me technical issues. And... I'm, by the way, if it ever goes out, like I'm, I'm, I don't have another way to do it until I get a new thing in the mail. So I was like, man, I think I'm going to keep this one because it is still good. But, you know, I need something new, modern. I wanted all these new features. The new ones have like, all these. Like low latency or something? No, this one's fine with that. It's more like the new ones. First of all, they do more tracks, which fine. But, but the, the bigger deal is that they have all these plugins that can emulate all this old hardware and stuff. I was like, oh, that's really cool. Um, Okay, but I get it. I install it. I set it up and it, and I plug it in and it's a USB thing, so it should be straightforward. Plug it in. It looks like it's recognized. I install the drivers. I look at the driver software. I'm like, oh, this is pretty cool. It's fairly intuitive. I'm so excited. I am about to start like, uh, you know, not even recording yet. I'm just about to start like loading in a program and I look over and there's an error on the screen, on the screen of the device. And I'm like, oh. That's weird. And then all of a sudden, the device is not recognized. I'm like, what? What the heck? So I look online. Oh, my gosh. All these posts about this stupid set of errors. No one's got solutions. They're as early as February of this year. So it's not like three years ago. And they find, no, nothing. And I'm like, why didn't I see this info before? Well, the reason I didn't see this info before is because when you do a search for these things, these posts never pop up. And I should have known better. I should have looked like known issues or problems, whatever. And unfortunately, I didn't. So then it turns out, I'm like, oh my God, I just bought a lemon, a very expensive lemon. I spent hours with their tech support going back and forth in a little chat window and nothing resolved it. I spent three days trying to troubleshoot it. And then you and I, we were trying to do our D&D episode and it took us an hour. And you know what I had to do is I had to rip it out, put my old thing back in, spend the time to reconnect it all back up, put a card back into my computer so I could get back up and running because this stupid thing didn't work. Who tests these things? I don't have an unusual setup. I have Windows 10. It's, it's 2020. 2020. <laughs> it's 2020. What the heck? Anyways, that's my griper rant. Well, that's a good one. Megan asks, Megan asks, how have you dealt with bullies, Bruto? Oh, that's a great question. All right, so um, bullies. When I was a kid, in, uh, I was uh, five, I was in New York City. I was in first grade, and there was a third grader who was bullying me. And though I don't remember all the details, I do remember this one day where they pushed me down a flight of stairs, and I rolled down two, basically two flights of stairs in a winding staircase at the school. It was horrible. I, uh, I mean, the kid was like two grades higher than me. I don't know why. I don't know why he was bullying me. I don't remember. What do you mean? So he pushed you once or he kept pushing you down the stairs? No, this, this was the one, like, I'm, there were other instances. I don't remember details about it, 
But the one that I do remember is I was walking up the stairs. Everyone was kind of going up the stairs, and it was a winding corridor with multiple stairways. This in Columbia? No, this was in New York City. Okay. So you would have been like pretty young. I was five, five, yeah. This kid was probably seven, shoved me such that I, I fell down the stairs and rolled down two flights of stairs. Oh, my God. Yeah, dude. I didn't understand why. I don't still don't know why. I didn't know why at the time. I didn't know what the hell. All right, so that was my first experience with a bully. Also in New York City, I was at an ice cream store. My dad was next door doing laundry. He had just bought me an ice cream cone. And I was sitting there, a little five-year-old, maybe six-year-old Barrett licking the ice cream cone. And some teenager, I don't know how old they were, some teenager knocks the ice cream out of my hand. Just falls on the ground. Who does that? Some psychopath, you know? So that was my second instance. Um, then when I was in Colombia, I I was really fast. And I was doing Taekwondo at the time, so I was I was it was easy for me to get out of out of situations. But I witnessed bullying so viciously. There was a classmate of mine who was we were in seventh grade. And he was being bullied by this 10th grader and his buddies all the time. And it was so bad because I remember there was, you had to walk, a lot of times you had to walk in between them to get to our classroom. And with him, as he was walking by, they would start kicking him. Like all of them, like four or five of these guys kicking him. And I, the only reason I could, like he was the one of the tallest and biggest dudes in our class. But I don't know why they would have it in for him and I would just I would see this I'm like and I, all the time I would be like oh man I want to do something but like you know there's like you felt powerless like what am I going to do I don't want to get beat up too um, and then my my personality developed over the years actually to be like get in people's faces about stuff like that so like when I was in high school um, in, in this was now here in the states back in, in Tacoma one day we were at a dance and I heard from someone that someone was outside jumping on cars and I went outside and there were there was someone in fact jumping on hoods of cars including mine I think uh, and this was like a, a larger person larger dude but my I had gotten to that point in my life where I was like I don't stand for shit like this you know so like I went right up and got in the person's face and and the dude backed off lucky for me because I didn't know this uh, the gym teacher was standing at the door and so I think the guy backed off because he saw the teacher, but I thought he was just like listening to my reason or whatever. But then the, the gym teacher later told me how proud of, of, of me he was that I was like trying to stand up for what was right and stuff like that. So that was a really good, good moment. And then after that, I personally didn't really, I was really lucky I felt because when I moved to this country when I was 15, I was assuming it was going to be Karate Kid. I was going to be Ralph Macho. They were going to be chasing me in my bike, all these things. And I luckily didn't have to deal with any of that. But I did witness a lot of it coming up. I did experience some of it when I was younger. And I found out from my dad a few years ago that when he was a, t- a young teenager, he was ver- bullied relentlessly by, by neighborhood bullies for years. And that broke my heart, man. Yeah. Yeah, bullying is awful. One of the things that I often will say is that... I've had clients, I've learned this clinically, who would come to me and after months of being in therapy, I finally realize, oh, 
their problems mainly stem from the traumas they experienced by bullies. And we often don't frame it that way. We think, ah, you know, trauma is being sexually abused, which of course it is. And we don't normally recognize the fact that bullying can be just as traumatic as any other of the classic traumas that we identify. And, you know, because just imagine if it was worse for you, Birdo, where every day you were being threatened or uh, for for years maybe and you had no safe place to go to and no recourse and how awful that would feel where you have to wake up in the morning and go to school and subject yourself to the bullying and then oftentimes victims of bullies will be uh, separated from other people like you just have no friends and that kind of thing and and just how horrible that can be i uh, years ago so i don't know 12 15 years ago I had my first client who hit all of his problems stemmed from being bullied around the age of 13. He went to this oh boarding school for – it was in another country and he was bullied the entire year and and it was when Facebook was first coming out hmm. and he was being connected because it was – remember the early days of Facebook where it was like, oh my god, Facebook is suggesting that I friend <laughs> – that person from middle school. Yeah, remember, yeah, yeah. remember it was that, I totally whole, remember that. Yeah. that whole wave, like 2008 kind of a thing. And he was getting all those suggestions from the perpetrators of the abuse he went oh. through. And a big part of his therapy was exploring how he was going to respond to that. Do I reach out to those people? Because you know, he, at this point, he was in his 40s and felt very powerful and strong and knew that if he got into a scuffle, he'd be able to handle himself now. And he's like, do I challenge them to a fight or, you know, all these kinds of things. But yeah, it was really, really hard for him. So, you know, Megan, when you ask how, how do, have we dealt with bullies? It's just such a hard thing to answer because we don't really have a system often that can protect victims from this. There's no CPS for, now sometimes schools will have an anonymous hotline or something or, but Usually schools and parents really miss the mark in terms of how to respond. A lot of the times what needs to happen is the perpetrator needs to be treated and needs to be dealt with as if they are a, a perpetrator of at least some version of, of, uh, of a crime. Yeah. If someone is systematically breaking you down and making you feel afraid – I consider that to be in the realm of a criminal behavior. Now, should they be locked yeah. up? No, but we shouldn't be advising. You know, if if someone, came, if you're, if a kid came to you and said, "So there's this kid at school, and every day he takes all my things. He takes my coat. He takes my lunch. He takes my wallet, and he stabs me in the leg with a knife." You wouldn't oh. say. You wouldn't advise the kid like, "Well." How about you stand up to him or, you know, tell a teacher? You'd be like, that person needs to be locked up. That perpetrator needs to be separated from – because that person is not fit to be around other kids. Well, just because it's verbal terror or minor scuffles shouldn't uh, negate this mindset of like that perpetrator needs to be separated because – they're probably not only harming one person. They're probably harming a lot of people. Now, there are probably reasons psychologically as to why that young person is doing those horrible things. But that person needs to be separated, treated, and then returned to general population after it's 
clear that they're not going to do this anymore. But we have this yeah. model of like, well, tell a teacher. Well, it, unless that if the teacher does anything short of grabbing the bully and making them go to a different school, you're still stuck with the goddamn bully every day. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, we need a better response system to this kind of behavior. Yeah, totally agree. And it's uh, something that is hard to talk about because people are embarrassed or they they feel that they're maybe being weak or they're being tattletales or whatever, you know? Yeah, and that's, you know... Now, for me, I, I, I'll tell you one story about bullying that I went through. I was probably, I don't know, six or seven, and I, and I walked home from grade school every day. It was a mile through suburbia to get home. And it was often by myself, at least for a certain section of the walk. And this neighborhood kid, Mike McAllister, who was older than me, he would have been four years older or something. He lived nearby. And he came upon me. And I sort of knew him, but he was an older kid, so I didn't really interact with him much. And he came up to me and he started talking to me. And I was like, this is kind of weird that this older boy is talking to me. So he would have been 11, 12. Again, I would have been seven. And then he grabs me and he starts he, – he had a, one of those classic Levi jean jackets and he kept with the, oh, metal, yeah. with the metal buttons and he kept like whipping my face and my, <gasps> my head with his jacket. Oh. And it didn't hurt so much as it was just terrifying. And I'm little and I know I can't get away from him and I just start crying. And, oh. he, and for probably, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes – as I'm just slowly walking home, he's repeatedly beating me with this jacket. He was doing other things too. And then we would cross the visual field of neighbors and he would put his arm around me and act like he was consoling me as he was, as I was crying. What a jerk. Yeah. This is like conduct disorder kind of stuff. Psych, oh, you know, er, burgeoning psychopathy. Right. And I don't know that obviously, but it has that feel to it. Right. And so I remember this clear as day. It was very traumatic for me growing up. And I finally get home and I walk in the door and my parents see me crying and they're like, what happened? And I, you know, I just tell them the whole story. My dad got so angry (laughs) that he said, okay, Kurt, come with me. And my dad, he grew up Japanese American in Spokane where there weren't hardly any people of color. And he had to learn how to stand up for himself when he was a kid and would fight people. You know, I just remember whenever there was an injustice, like one of the things that I remember growing up, we would go to Hayden Lake because my white, the white side of my family had this uh, huge summer home acreage on Hayden Lake. Well, anyone who knows Idaho, it's in Idaho. Anyone who knows Hayden Lake, it's famous for the fact that there's a, the biggest KKK ranch is, in the Northwest is on Hayden oh, really? Lake. Yeah. Oh, is wow. on Hayden Lake. And it was just a kind of, it's a huge lake, but it was kind of around the corner. And when we were on the property, it was big enough that we felt safe. But when we went into town, Coeur d'Alene, we never knew would there be KKK people there. And so Jeez. my dad, I just remember he would, you know, he'd sit me down and say, Kirk, so we're about to go into town and something might happen and just know that I'm here to protect you. And I'll take care of it. And if someone 
does anything, I'm going to, I'm going to pound them. I don't know what he said, but I just remember thinking (laughs) my dad's going to pound someone, you know, (laughs) if if anything happens. And so anyway, my dad, you know, says, okay, we're going. So we just walked over to the house and my dad knocks on the door and the Mr. McAllister comes to the door and, and uh, uh, the, the, the dad says, what's up? And my dad says, so your son, Mike, just did all these things to my son, who's much younger than Mike yeah. and much smaller and had no ability to protect himself. And I just want you to know that you need to do something about your son. You yeah. know, very clear, like, because I'm walking to school every day. This is right. a neighbor. This is a neighbor kid. <laughs> like, and, and, uh, I can't remember exactly what happened, but the, the dad the Mr. McAllister indicated that he would absolutely take care of it, which I felt really good about. And I, I'm, I'm guessing it, it satisfied my dad. Looking back, you got to wonder why Ooh. Mike was violent to begin with, right? And what taking care of it meant. Right. Now, I will tell you it never happened again, which, oh, you know, okay. so there's that. That's good. <laughs> yeah. He did try to terrorize my older brother and older sister, but my older brother was bigger than him, so my older oh. brother could kind of uh, protect, yeah. you know. But uh, but that was separate, maybe even before this all thing happened with me. Anyway, so uh. that's my experience with bullies, and you know, it was it was a hard experience. You got to wonder, like, how much of my base level anxiety is due to the 15 minutes of terror that I went, it was, it was awful. You know, that, that feeling, and especially yeah. I'll tell you that the real kicker was that he was, uh, he was Machiavellian enough that when we crossed the field of view of neighbors that we knew, he put his arm around me and did a very good job acting like he was consoling me. Like, that's what really messed with my head. It was Yikes. like, I was like, Whoa, like, People can do stuff like this, you know. Yeah, you can be that Machiavellian and that manipulative and that horrible that, uh, you know, it because it, it'd be one thing if he was losing his control of his anger, but this yeah. was this was systematic, like a campaign, like a premeditated system of abuse. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, uh, it was sadistic. Yeah, yeah, sadistic is a good word for it. Anyway, dude. I just remembered that the um, so when I first uh, before I moved here at fifteen, I had been coming to visit my mom and my brother. Uh, I came when I was twelve and when I was thirteen for a summer. And a friend of my friend, uh, in fact, you know my friend Paul Stibby. Uh, we he had a, another friend, and I met him. Uh, and at the time, when I first was in one of those trips, I remember he was sort of leaning in the bully direction a bit. I don't remember anything specifically, but I do remember being a little bit like, ugh. And um, I remember we would like wrestle a bit and like he was bigger than me. He was kind of a heavy set. And um, I just remember being a little intimidated, like, oh no, this is not good. But that was it. And I was only here for the summer or whatever. And it wasn't really like big bullying or something, but it was threatening in that direction. When I moved here, I uh, I started in, in swim you know, and swimming team, and I started doing weight training, all these things. And I remember we went on this family trip where they came to. Uh, we were in Victoria, and he wanted to wrestle, and we started wrestling in the hotel room. Um, and it was like it was it was hilarious because he could not move me anymore. I didn't know any wrestling because I never did wrestling, but I I had gotten so much stronger 
from the swimming and the weight training that like I, I could, it was sort of like playing with a kid all of a sudden. And so then he, from there on, was super nice to me. <laughs> but that's sometimes, unfortunately, what it means is that like, unless you have, like you said, in the case of your older brother, unless you have like the, the threat back to the bully or the potential, and, and maybe I'm being a bit unfair because like I said, it wasn't like this ever really developed into full bullying, but I felt like it could have gone in that direction. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, I'm glad that you found a way out of that. that. That part was just like sort of luck. Like, well, you know, different kids develop at different speeds. And um, and the other thing, though, I, I will emphasize, and I don't know. Well, I do know why. So and maybe it's because my dad had been bullied as a kid. I never knew why. But every time I saw my dad, he the one thing he always did is he would stand up for things. And maybe it wasn't maybe it wasn't in reality, because obviously there were a lot of things in his real life that he ended up dropping on on the floor. But but he got in trouble in hospitals he worked at because he would stand up to injustice. He would be like, "This you're serving these people rancid milk. Like, this is wrong. You know, like these kind of things. And I would see him trying to really stand up for the little people and all these things. And I think that, like, over the years, finally imbued in me a sense of, like, well, you know, it doesn't matter if you're going to get hurt. Like, you got to do what's right, you know. And I did appreciate that about him. So, people out there, have you been bullied before? If you're watching on YouTube, comment below. If you're listening on Facebook, comment below. Let us let you know. Share your experiences if you want. Also, we've talked about goop. What's your experience of goop? What's your experience of psychedelic therapy? Uh, what's your experience of the friend zone or the dick zone? Uh, what's your gripe of wrath? Uh, the last thing that someone wanted us to talk about on Facebook was from Lise. They said, "Talk about." Erica Eiffel, the woman who was married to the Berlin Wall, but now is married to the Eiffel Tower. So I've talked about this on the podcast before, and just briefly, when I first looked into this, and there are a number of different profiles and documentaries on YouTube, so it's all the sort of information I have, because I've never treated anyone like this. I don't know anyone personally who has fallen in love with an object. But at first I thought, well, these people must be psychotic. They must be delusional. They must have some kind of thought disorder. But the documentary doesn't seem to indicate that. Of course, I can't know that. But it it seems to be that for whatever reason, some people have a disposition or a defense or something where their romantic and or sexual energy is pointed at objects. It seems to be a rare thing, but it seems to be common enough that there's enough people that we can point to that have all sim- – that, that report similar feelings like – Ooh, the Eiffel Tower, it just makes me feel so good inside. And and they will get a replica of the Eiffel Tower, and they, they just want to see it all the time. And the way they describe their relationship with the Berlin Wall or something is the way one would describe a relationship with a romantic and sexual partner. And from what I can tell, as long as it's not harming anyone, it – appears to just be a regular human variation that is rare, but common enough that we've seen multiple people with this similar experience. Now, we can't rule out the, the possibility that they're just saying this to get attention because certainly that's possible, but it certainly doesn't seem that way to me. So can it be part of a disorder? Can it be part of a some sort of larger psychotic or delusional disorder? Absolutely. But like I said, it, it certainly didn't seem that way in the depictions that I've seen. 
Yeah, I don't know if we should gloss over the the potential damage done here because my understanding is that uh, the Eiffel Tower used to go out with the Grand Canyon. Um, the Grand Canyon has started having an affair with the Empire State Building. But then the Grand Canyon and the Eiffel Tower were going to get back together, and then this lady stepped in. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's polyamory or... That's true. Poly... poly- architecturally (laughs) well that does it for that episode of psychology in seattle thanks for joining us out there please take care of yourself because you deserve it 